We are recording today's program. We have a podcast on iTunes, OCCSP. We have over 200 recordings there, so if this is your first CSP event, you can catch up a bit. Daniel Stein Koken is Junior Professor of Jewish Literature and Culture at the University of Greifswald. Greifswald in Germany. He's a visiting assistant professor uh, at the UCLA International Institute with a primary focus on Israel studies. In 2015 through 16, he served as the Viterbi Professor of Mediterranean Jewish Studies at UCLA. During the academic year, Professor Stein Koken will teaches, um, this is maybe a little old, so. Yes, I taught them. Taught <laughs> three undergraduate courses in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures, Symbolic Places and Spaces in Modern Israel and the Palestinian Territories, Settlement in, Isra in Israeli History, and Introduction to Jewish Studies. He also. He also taught Europe and Israel the history of a vexed relationship uh, in, the, in the International and, and Area Studies Program of the International Institute. Professor Stein Koken's research ranges, from, ranges across Renaissance, Jewish, and Israeli studies and has been supported by uh, Villa One, Villa I, Tati? Villa Itati, the Harvard University Center for Italia Renaissance Studies in Florence, Italy, and the Kata? Uh, my, my German is not too good. Hamburg, uh, colleague of the Ruhr, <laughs> Ruhr University, Bochum, yes, in Germany. Okay. A native Angelino, which means you were born and raised in Los Angeles? That means his English should be pretty good, hopefully. <laughs> He's not a New Yorker like that guy over there, so his English is pretty good. Uh, Daniel Stankoken received his BA in Classics from the University of Chicago and his PhD in Renaissance Intellectual History from Harvard University, completing additional coursework in Jewish studies at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Please join me in welcoming Professor Daniel Stein Koken for our program today. Thank you. Good luck. Good afternoon. I'm delighted to be here and uh, delighted to see such a nice crowd here. I'm glad that this topic has aroused some interest. And thank you very much to Ari Katz for the invitation to come here. And I also would like to acknowledge someone who isn't here, Rabbi Eli Spitz of uh, B'nai Israel in uh, Tustin, who made the initial uh, shidduch between uh, the two of us. <laughs> so before I begin, just a word about the formal title for this program, L'chol Shiraich. Some of you may recognize I'm citing uh, Naomi Shemer's Yerushalayim Shel Zahav. Obviously, that's a song about Jerusalem, and my focus today is about Israel. But that phrase, for all your songs, I am a liar, in a way inspired me to try to think in this 70th anniversary year of uh, the founding of the State of Israel, to think about how we might summarize the course and development of Israeli musical history. And the idea that came to me was to try to choose one song for each of Israel's seven decades to profile these songs, and then to sort of get a sense of what what comes out of that? How, what, how does the musical culture evolve over time? What are the different, what different focuses do these songs have? Uh, and in particular, my goal in this program is to showcase songs that, are, that tend to be less well known to American Jewish audiences. Uh, so Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, been there, done that. Shir L'Shalom, not today. Forget about it. You can try my New Yorker there. Hava Nagila, give me a break. Um, and because due to the limitations on time, I can't say nearly everything that I would have to say about these songs, but I invite you, if, you, if I've piqued your interest, to check in a few weeks 
at the Nazarian Center for Israel Studies website at UCLA, where a fuller version of this program will be available on, on the web. And you'll have links to all of the videos and texts that, that you have and that I will be showing, and then a fuller discussion of each of the, of each of the songs. Okay? So, one last thing. As you encounter these songs, pay attention to the shift in time in attitudes concerning the Zionist Israeli enterprise. And I hope you find it educational and meaningful to be exposed to and to learn about these songs, these seven songs, and about their significance in Israeli culture. But if nothing else, I trust that you'll enjoy listening to them. And so let's get started. Let's press play, so to speak. First song, Shir Hareut, Song of Friendship from 1948. This is, in a way, the anthem of the, Yom ha of the independence war generation in Israel, specifically of the Palmach, the elite fighting force that did so much of the fighting in that war and in the years leading up to that war. And indeed, the author of the song, Chaim Guri, who you see there, was a member of the, of the Palmach himself. And this is a song that commemorates the fallen in the independence war, and by extension in all of Israel's wars. And it's played every year in Israel on the occasion of Yom HaZikaron, Memorial Day, the day, of course, preceding Yom, ha Yom HaAtzma'ut, Independence Day. And while always moving, this song is especially evocative this year because Chaim Guri himself died at the very end of January at the age of 94. And I'll just note, when you see in the text, which you have, hopefully all of you, does everyone have a handout? Actually, hopefully you all have the text of the songs. When the song pines that only a few of us remain, how many are no longer with us, we should bear in mind that in Israel's war of independence, 6,000 Israelis died, fully 1% of the population there at the time. And at its core, this song declares, paradoxically perhaps, that while the friends themselves may have perished, the friendship that united us to them lives on, ensuring that they will never be forgotten. Before we hear the song, I want to linger on one particular term that comes up in it, uh, the term blorit, uh, or forelock in English. Uh, it appears in the chorus of the song, and this refers to a particular wild tuft of hair above the forehead that, thanks to this song and others like it, became an essential part of the mystique of this uh, generation a sign of this young soldier's rugged beauty and rebelliousness against traditional authority, including against traditional Jewish authority that obliged the covering of one's uh, head. Now, in the weeks leading up to this presentation, I did my best to sprout one of these uh, a blurry, but alas, this presentation comes a few years too late. But thanks to uh, the wonders of the internet, I can show you a little bit what this looks like. Here you see two <laughs> choice specimens of the blurit both, as it turns out, from members of the Palmach who, in fact, perished in the War of Independence. So exactly, these are exactly the kinds of people uh, whom this song is, was written uh, to commemorate. And then just one more, no, actually, back, yeah. Just on the right side there, you see this record uh, uh, album cover of the Nachal songs. And I just want to note that this song, the video we're about to see, features a performance of the song by Lehakata Nachal by the Nahal uh, Entertainment Troupe. And this is the most uh, well-known, the most famous of the uh, entertainment troops that each branch of the Israeli military has. And the Lakata uh, La Nahal, the Nahal Entertainment Troupe in particular, played a critical role for the development of Israeli music. So many of the great stars of Israeli music got their start in this uh, and other of these uh, army uh, entertainment troops, including some of the people who are actually featured in this uh, in this uh, video. 
Okay, and now, without further ado, let's listen to the piece that one commentator has described as the Song of Songs of modern Hebrew music. Please follow along on your handout.
I'll just note in the chorus that celebration of the, the Blorit and the figure, it says, this, and there's this real emphasis on physical beauty in this song, very much in tune with the new Zionist emphasis on the Jewish body as opposed to Jewish learnedness, which had traditionally been the case. Before we proceed to the next song, I actually want to say something about the continuing relevance of this song in Israeli life. A few years ago, a Reut museum was founded in the Galilee, where you can see actually the original manuscript of the song at the site of a series of important battles uh, in the uh, independence uh, war. That's where the museum is located. And the song also plays a very prominent role in a really amazing episode of the award-winning Israeli sitcom Arab Labor, creation of the Arab-Israeli writer Syed Kashua. Some of you may be familiar with it. And this, this is an episode that manages to, it, we interweave the Israeli Zionist narrative and the Palestinian Nakba catastrophe narrative in a way that I have not encountered or rivaled anywhere else. So just a little bit of background here. The protagonist of the series, Amjad, is a successful Israeli Arab journalist working in Jerusalem who has chosen to send his daughter Maya to a Jewish school where he feels she will receive a better education. Things get dicey though in the spring uh, because Maya is determined against her parents' wishes to participate in the school's Memorial Day commemoration. In the end, she lands a central role in it, singing, well, you can guess, which song. But these, this Israeli memory at the same time serves here as the backdrop for the contrasting Palestinian memory. For we also observe Maya's grandmother telling her story from the beginning, as she says, showing pictures of the village that the family inhabited prior to the war. So it's really an amazing instance in which the, in which the uh, subservient minority exploits the canon of the dominant majority to tell that same majority about its own story of loss. Remember, this is a, from a television show shown on Israeli TV at prime time. And in the process in doing that, it suggests a broadened definition of what, to quote the song, Nisgor et Kulam, we will remember everyone, might mean. Please watch. <laughs> كان يا مكان في قرية صغيرة. on to our next song, uh, Shoshana Damari, Hora Mamtera. I heard this gentleman singing from the chorus a few minutes ago. I'm very impressed. Feel free to sing along when we come to the, to the playing of the song itself. 
So I want to start out by referring to a poem written in 1947 by the renowned Israeli poet Natan Alterman, one of the great poets of the early years of Zionism and the state of Israel. And this is a poem called Water is Traveling South, in which he ruminates on the age-old question of who makes history. Is it the government cabinets? Is it the administration? Is it the senator? Is it the president? Um, to these sort of usual suspects, we might say, in terms of answers, Alterman adds a less uh, expected one, namely the plumber. Uh, the plumber who directs a pipe into the desert. The context for this rather surprising declaration is uh, the very first pipe connecting the Zionist settlements in the Negev to the emerging national water grid of Palestine and what became Israel in 1947. One member of the United Nations Special Commission on Palestine, which was investigating the Palestine question in the summer of 1947, said to his Jewish uh, host in the Negev, this water pipe will give you the Negev. And indeed, a few months later, the United Nations allotted the Negev Desert to the future state of Israel in the context of the uh, partition plan for British Mandate Palestine. So against this backdrop, one can perhaps begin to understand somewhat better how a mere sprinkler could be the subject of such a rousing and saccharine song, and indeed a uh, kitsch alert uh, for what uh, follows. Um, but mere, as in mere sprinkler, is really the wrong adjective for 1950s Israel, because we're, at this point in time, we're at the height of the myth of making the desert uh, bloom, this desire to make this vast region flourish. Uh, and the optimism and excitement and commitment surrounding this enterprise. This song was composed by the famed duo of Mora and Walensky, a kind of Israeli Rodgers and Hammerstein, who composed lots, really dozens of songs, in particular for the Nahal troupe that we saw in the previous, in the previous one. And it's performed by Shoshana Damari, who was born in Yemen, but came with her family prior to the founding of the State of Israel uh, to, to Palestine. And Damari is known as the first lady of Israeli song. Um, she was really one of the leading singers, female singers in, in, in Israeli life for decades. And just a few notes about the text of the song itself. First of all, the fact that it, is, that it presents itself as a hora, that is to say it's a dance, and a collective dance at that, which really symbolizes the notion of a collective enterprise in transforming the desert, and a collective celebration of that enterprise. Note also in the text the personification of the Negev. The pipes are arteries, basically, as if they are bringing blood, uh, life, to the, to the wilderness. Also the sense of conquest, of mastery over the desert. The pipes have cast their net, the song sings at one point in time. And finally, I'll draw your attention in the text to the image of the rainbow that appears. And this evokes the, uh, the covenant in the, in, in the biblical case uh, that takes place after the flood. But here it's a kind of secularized, naturalized covenant. It's, it represents the fact that here we, uh, the new Jews, the new Israelis, are transforming creation. And in the process, we are transforming ourselves. Uh, transforming ourselves from Jews into Israelis. Okay. Sobi, <laughs> 
going but you get the idea so in the interest of time we'll move on to the next uh, song Pitom Kamadam uh, or as it's officially known Shir Baboker Baboker it was written sometime in the late 40s by leading Israeli poet Amir Gilboa but became especially famous in the early 70s in 1973 in fact when it was sung at the Festival Hazemer Hapizmon Festival of Song and Melody uh, by the young up-and-coming uh, singer uh, Shlomo Artsy, who you see here. It won second prize at that festival, went on later that year to become the top song in Israel, was featured on one of Artsy's most celebrated albums, Omrim Yeshna Eretz, They Say There's a Land, which you see uh, uh, here before you. And just a word about uh, Shlomo Artsy, he got his start in the Navy entertainment troupe, again, another instance of how these army uh, uh, entertainment troops played such a role in launching the careers of important Israeli uh, musicians, and he went on to become one of the great uh, uh, male Israeli singers still very active today. The text of this song, which you can look at on your handout, overflows with imagery evoking renewal, strength, and fertility. An individual wakes up feeling like he is a nation, and the entire world reverberates from this discovery. Whole stalks of grain magically rise up before him through cracks in sidewalks. Trees shower him with their fragrances, and the dew of the ground and hills above are, at, as it were, at his service. Not only nature recognizes his new status, but the rest of humanity does as well. Shamed wars bow down before him, shame presumably for how they have treated this man, whose glory, we read, we learn, has been in hiding for a thousand years, with a thousand more of great promise and fertility lying before him. Most striking, however, is the images of, of spring following upon winter that comes toward the poem's close. And he sees that spring has returned and that the tree is turning green for the first time since last fall. Now on the surface, this song presents us with an individual who suddenly gets up one morning and feels and discovers that his entire circumstances have changed. And the metaphor that the song uses is that he feels like he's a nation. So it's about a man getting up and feeling like he's a whole nation. Uh, so the nation supplies the metaphor and model for the rejuvenation the man experiences. But in fact, beneath the surface, this poem is in fact about the rebirth of a nation with the image of a man waking up and feeling you know, exuberant in the morning and ready to start the day, supplying uh, the metaphor uh, and the model. And of course, 
The man who's rising up in the morning and getting up is the Jewish people, the people of Israel. And the new world he encounters is the world of sovereignty and statehood, a world in which you can, at least in theory, stand up straight and call out shalom, as this man does, to whomever you encounter without fear. And it's worth noting that Gilboa, the poet, lost almost his entire family in the, in the Holocaust. So the, the transformation that this poem evokes takes on a greater significance against that backdrop. And just a note about the music for this song, co-authored by Artsy, Shlomo Artsy himself, which perfectly suits and indeed magnifies the energy and optimism of the poem. Listen in particular to the syncopated rhythm, which jars us, rouses us from our passivity, makes us want to get moving. Also note how the first line uh, of the chorus about the man getting up is in solo, thereafter joined by drum, drums and instruments, and then in repetition by other voices. That is to say, the very progression and unfolding of the music itself underscores the notion of the individual rediscovering and merging into his collective national identity. Bitom Kamadam. Bitom Kamadam baboker umargish ki huam umatkhil lalekhet ulkhola nifgash bedarko Thank you. 
one song just makes you want to get up and get to work. And in fact, in the summer of 2011, you may, some of you may recall, Israel was, was uh, overwhelmed by a wave of social demonstrations protesting inequality, government corruption, and the high cost of living in Israel. And the phrase, pitom kamadam, suddenly a man gets up, became actually one of the mottos of the protests. The Times revived to pitom kamam, suddenly a, a nation gets up. And in fact, Shlomo Artsy gave a concert for the demonstrators in Tel Aviv in which he played this very song. Thus, a song that had originally celebrated the rebirth of Jewish national identity now came to stand for the recovery of the initial justice and solidarity of a national movement widely regarded as having lost its way. And I had a clip for that, but I'm going to pass over that in the interest of time. But I do want to show you a second clip. Um, Again, from that very same episode of Arab labor, which again shows how the song is used in a contemporary Israeli context and indeed subverted. So just a word of background here. Here you'll see the character you'll see is Amal. She's a f female Arab civil rights attorney working in Jerusalem who's being courted by Meir, an Israeli Jew and uh, a colleague and close friend of Amjad, uh, who I mentioned before. They have a deep attraction to each other. They've slept with each other a few times, but it's uh, you know, around the sort of uh, season of Independence Day, Nakba, and so forth. She feels like the relationship has no prospects and is trying to pull back. Uh, and what you're going to see here is from Independence Day morning in Jerusalem. And it's wonderfully subversive of it uh, because it takes a song, as you just heard, about a man getting up in the morning, feeling like he's a nation, saying shalom to whomever he encounters on the way, and shifts it to a woman alien to the excessive nationalist sentiment all around her, who refuses to say hello to the one person who calls her. Watch it. And here's Amal, the Arab civil rights lawyer. She sees Mayer is calling and she doesn't want to talk. And it's right at the point in the song where it says, and to everyone who he encounters, he says shalom, that Mayer calls and she refuses to take the call. It's a wonderful subversion, inversion of the whole message of the song. Okay, uh, moving on uh, to Chad Gad Ya. Uh, and warning, this is not your Pesach, Haggadah, Seder, Chagadiyah. Yeah. Uh, Chava Alberstein, who you see on the left, along with Shoshana Damari, one of the great uh, female Israeli singers, still very much active uh, today. Uh, by, by just changing a few words to the traditional song, Chagadiyah, from the close of the Pesach uh, Seder, manages to turn what is essentially a whimsical sort of harmless song into a rather gripping political critique. And what I want to draw your attention to here is as you follow along in the text, and I'm going to imagine that most of us are familiar with, uh, with Had Gad Yah, at the point in the, in the song where HaKadosh Baruch Hu, where the Holy One, blessed be He, is supposed to show up and sort of wrap everything up, kind of deus ex machina, so to speak, um, uh, 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 there is no God who appears at all. Instead, there is a question. Why are you at all singing Chad Gadya? It's not Pesach time at all. Page five, thank you. 
And here I'll just note, let's just ling linger on the text for a minute toward the bottom there. Why are you singing Chad God Yah now? Spring hasn't yet arrived. Passover isn't coming. This is a citation from a very well-known Israeli children's song. Simcha Rabbah, Simcha Rabbah, Pesach Ba. Yeah, so you're familiar with this. So she quotes that song, but instead of Pesach coming, Pesach is precisely not coming. It's nowhere in sight. What does Pesach represent? Pesach represents redemption, a solution to the problem. There's no solution. There's no redemption in sight whatsoever. And so what she's doing basically is she's transforming a song that if you think about it, basically offers a kind of linear perspective on history with God at the end basically resolving everything. And it transforms that sort of linear, linear biblical history actually into a more circular sort of Greek tragedy-like history. The very end of the song, if you look at it as, our father bought a kid for two zuzim and it starts again from the beginning. That means instead of a line, we're in this vast circle that just plays itself over and over again. And what is it that plays itself out? It's this constant, this one attacks, this one, this one attacks, this one, this one attacks, this one, this one attacks, this one. There's a question at the end. She also evokes Manishtana, the four questions of the Pesach Seder, introduces a fifth one. When will this cycle of horror end? When will this, he eats, he hits this one, that one hits this one, that one eats this one, that one is devoured by that one. When will that end? And again, the close of the song seems to suggest it will never end. History is just one vast cycle that destined to forever repeat itself. Now, why is this significant? What's the political critique here? Well, she notes, uh, and this I think we're on page six now, the question that she actually supplements to the traditional four questions is, what has changed for you? That is to say, on Pesach, we generally think about, you know, what are the things that are different about this night? How is this night different from all the other nights? She transforms what is basically an external directed question to an internal directed question. What has changed for you? And what has changed, and this is the powerful point of the, real, the core of the song, I myself have changed this year. I'm reading on page six. I used to be a lamb and a calm kid. Today I am a leopard and a predator wolf. I've been a dove and I've been a deer. Today I don't know who I am. And so here, instead of thinking of Hadgadya as just a cycle of different entities who attack or are attacked one after another, she actually imagines the Jewish, the Israeli collective identity evolving over time from one animal into a different animal. And you should note here that the animals referenced here are all straight out of Isaiah 11.6, the beautiful image of the lion lying down with the lamb and so forth. No, that's not what's happening. There's a continual evolution from one into the other. And this is really a critique of Zionism and of Israel. Why so? Zionism, in its classic ideological formulation, offered the solution to the Jewish problem. And what she is saying here is there is no solution. And not only that, the question has been intensified. I don't know who I am anymore. I used to be a docile lamb. Yes, I suffered, but I knew who I was. Then I turned into a leopard and a predatory wolf because I became strong. And I was able to conquer and fight against others. And now I don't know what to make of myself. And one should also bear in mind when this song came out, 1989, in the midst of the first intifada. And in fact, without even mentioning the word intifada or Palestinian at all, it was very clear to the Israeli listener what was intended here. And the song was actually for a time banned from Israeli state radio. The ban was overturned by the courts, but the fact remains the song has hardly actually been heard in Israel. And in a kind of Chad retaliation, 
As a result, Chava Alberstein actually drastically curtailed her performances in Israel into uh, the early 21st century uh, in response to that. One last point, we can also think of this as a kind of, this song is reflecting a kind of midlife crisis. Okay, it, was, it was released in Israel's 41st year and in Chava Alberstein's 43rd year. So that point in existence where you begin to question who you are, what's the point of all of this, where is this going, um, and so forth. All right, let's hear Chad Gadya. And you'll know how it gradually, it, it, the attention gradually builds, uh, gradually, gradually builds throughout the song. Thank you. 
deep breath, yes. Uh, and I'll just note, since she's been in the news uh, recently, this song was featured in the 2005 Israeli film Free Zone, starring Natalie Portman. And actually, the opening of the film features Natalie, um, I forget the name of the character in the film, sitting in a car. It's raining outside, so it meant to evoke sort of tears listening to that song. And then the film closes with that song at the very end, where you see the Israel, another Israeli the main Israeli female character and the main Palestinian female uh, character sort of haggling over, over a, a monetary dispute in a car. So this song provides sort of the bookends for that film. And the free zone of the title refers actually to a special trading region in Jordan, but can be said also metaphorically to sort of evoke a, a sort of a space where one can talk freely about things, which happens in the film in a way in contrast perhaps to the Israeli, to Israeli society where, again, this film was for a long time not really, uh, not really welcome. Moving on uh, to our next song, Ma'ale uh, Avak, A Scent of Dust. Uh, now in his article, Wall, of, Wall and Tower, The Mold of Israeli Architecture, the Israeli architect and scholar, Sharon Rothbard, argues that the Israeli tendency to refer to newly established communities as settlement points hits at the fact that the point on the map was more important than the settlement itself. In other words, the strategic value of the new point counted far more than the quality of life to be experienced by the new community's residents. In Ma'ale Avak, the band Tipex satirizes this top-down Israeli approach to settlement in a brilliant reductio ad absurdum. The original point, pun intended, of such settlements was to expand the reach of Zionist colonization in the pre-state period. But this song considers what happens, as did, when this approach to settlement persists after sovereignty has been attained and widespread settlement achieved. In such a context, all is reversed. There are now only missing points waiting to be filled and empty patches on the map that don't make a good impression, as you'll see in the text. I'm citing from the text. And as opposed to people requiring homes, the houses of the fictional community recounted in this song are in need of people, pawns in the hands of powerful government officials whose lives will fill them up. These people will be brought there to fill up these new houses. Now the bureaucratic story of the origins of the fictional community celebrated here, um, in conjunction with its isolated, forlorn character, as indicated, I again cite from the text, uh, by coffee houses with drunkards and people locking themselves up at home, remembering the dream of the forgotten, the solidarity of the isolated, clearly marks this fictional Ma'ale Avak as a development town, an Ayara Pituach, one of the two dozen or more small cities founded or built up in the early post-independence uh, period of Israel to house new immigrants and ensure Israeli control over border regions. Uh, and though they, these towns were actually well-planned by the standards at the time, the impression that one has of them is that they were basically sort of randomly constructed, hence the reference to houses tossed as if they were matchboxes, as you'll see in the song. Most recently, the development town has provided the backdrop for the hit Broadway musical The Band's Visit, based on the 2007 film by the same name, which I saw actually was or will soon be screened at this uh, at this very uh, facility. I highly recommend seeing the film if you haven't yet. The name granted here to this new fictional point on the map is especially striking. The Hebrew ma'aleh, meaning ascent, 
references the numerous Israeli communities that bear this name, most prominently Ma'alei Adumim, the big settlement east of Jerusalem. And it lends this, this imagined community a sense of verisimilitude. It also satirizes the tendency to grant these new settlements, these new towns exalted, distinguished names, even if they are really quite isolated, undistinguished places. And I'll also refer to the second title, Dust, which raises two associations. One is the fact that many of these development towns were in fact constructed in desert regions. So another take in this program on the Negev, on the desert in Israeli life. Um, but there's another sort of less uh, or more problematic uh, evocation of the word dust um, because it can be said to refer to the new immigrants who tended to populate these towns. Ben, David Ben-Gurion famously referred to this demographic, especially those from Arab lands, as human dust in need of transformation. So this song implicitly satirizes that problematic goal, highlighting the negative results to which it led. Just a word about the band Tipex uh, itself. They should know uh, well about this phenomenon because this band hails from Sterot, one of the classic development towns located in Israel's south, close to the Gaza Strip. And its members uh, have Tunisian, Moroccan, Bulgarian, Romanian, Syrian, Polish, Russian, and Yemenite heritage. So they're just a wonderful uh, uh, instance of Israeli multiculturalism. And one of the things I want you to li listen to in this song is the Mizrahi, the Eastern inflection of the music, something we haven't yet encountered uh, in the music I've profiled today because that Mizrahi element really comes into Israeli music in the, in the 1990s uh, in a big way. All right. Malay Avak. Hey, the fan, 
the nice Mizrahi Eastern uh, Oriental melody, but you can listen to that uh, more uh, uh, if you like later on. I'll just note that TPEX was in fact one of Israel's most popular bands in, from mid-90s into the early 2000s, so it really did make a major impact on the Israeli musical scene. Now we're going to talk about something that doesn't happen every day, that one of the nation's, that a nation's, one of the nation's leading writers uh, collaborates with a hip-hop funk band. Uh, but that is, in fact, the story at the root of our next song, Shirat Sticker, the sticker song. The lyrics were mostly composed by David Grossman, and the song is is, has, it was performed by Hadag Nachash, uh, the fish snake, uh, one of the leading hip-hop groups in, uh, in Israel, especially in the early uh, 2000s. What is this... Uh, song do, it takes Israeli bumper sticker culture, of which you see a wonderful, if rather extreme, specimen here before you, and elevates it to a literary art, we might say, even as it subjects it to blistering critique. And virtually the entire text of the song is taken from bumper stickers that uh, were to be found in Israel in the early 2000s. Uh, and just a little bit of background about Israeli bumper stickers, and we can go to the next slide. I think one of the best ways to sort of talk about the dialogue that has taken place between bumper stickers, the implicit dialogue among bumper stickers, so to speak, in Israeli culture, is to talk about uh, one of the key, uh, what happened to one of the key mottos emerging from the Rabin assassination. You will probably all recall Bill Clinton, Shalom Haver, goodbye friend, which you see here as a bumper sticker. So that then, so it became a very popular bumper sticker and then gave rise to another bumper sticker below it, Haver Anizocher, friend I remember. I haven't forgotten about you, Rabin. I haven't forgotten about your striving for peace. Then uh, that led to other bumper stickers. On the right side, you'll have Hazman Over Vatachaser Haver. Time passes and you are, we miss you. Uh, you're missing, uh, friend. Uh, or Haver Atachaser which came before, friend, you are missing. Uh, all, of course, uh, slogans for the left, but then the right appropriated the Rabin genre bumper sticker legacy, you might say. And so you have here on the right also, Hakol Biglalcha, Haver. It's all your fault. It's all because of you, uh, friend. Referring, of course, to terrorist attacks believed to have resulted from the, uh, by, by, people, by many people on the right as a result of the Oslo agreements in the 1990s. And there's another one, Shalom Haverim, goodbye friends, presumably referring to uh, anticipated or occurred uh, defeat of left-wing political forces. You know, goodbye friends, you're going home, you're out of the government now, and so forth. So, okay, so there's this sort of dialogue between stickers that the song basically plays with and intensifies. Uh, I'll just give you very quickly an example, the very opening salvo of the song. Um, on your handout, this is page uh, eight. An entire generation demands peace. Let the IDF win. 
A strong nation makes peace. Let the army mow them down. You see sort of these vastly different slogans basically just, uh, juxtaposed, placed in intense uh, uh, conflict with one another, really laying bare the stakes uh, of this rhetoric and the stark difference in opinion within Israeli uh, society. Now, I will say that while David Grossman composed most of the text of the song, Hadag Nachash did make a few adjustments. One was to transform a letter vet to a chaf, thereby transforming the slogan, death to the Arabs, which existed as a bumper sticker in Israel, to death to values. And the band explained they didn't relish the thought of concert goers basically singing along at the song and then, and then chanting this at a concert. And death to values, in a way, underscores what's really at stake if you anyway have that bumper sticker, one could say. They also in inserted, you'll see it, uh, test to be Yarka, test in Yarka, a very whimsical sort of bit of humor in a song that's otherwise quite, uh, quite uh, heavy and harsh in its, uh, in its text. This refers to a popular place in Israel for cars to undergo their safety inspection. So you would get a little bumper sticker, test by Yarka, indicating that your car had passed the test. Uh, so the, the band, they inserted that in there as a kind of little, just, you know, a little moment of uh, uh, lightheartedness, comic relief, so to say. Also worthy of note is the most oft-repeated phrase in the entire song, Kamaroa Efsharliv Loa, how much evil can be swallowed, which was the mantra of the successful campaign in Israel to ban the production of goose liver. Israel actually had been one of the leading countries in the world for the production of uh, pâté de foie gras until its production was banned in 2003. But of course, this slogan also sort of in a way is meant to sort of suggest about Israelis. Are, are they akin to geese who are against their will force-fed this, you know, this, this horrendous diet of unhealthy slogans? Kamaroa um, Charlie Vloa, how much evil can one bear to swallow? I'll also draw your attention to the final sequence of the song, a litany of violent rhetoric of the most extreme order that culminates in the bumper sticker that we saw, that we see right there, Hakol Biglalcha Haver. And you'll notice uh, when we get to the video, the cocking of a rifle that occurs right at that moment. In other words, making it unmistakable what the consequences of very harsh and uncompromising sloganeering can lead to, namely to political violence, to assassination. And uh, the Rabin assassination is also relevant to mention here because it actually has a lot to do with the genesis of the song itself. It was on November 5th, uh, 1995, the very day uh, after that terrible event, that David Grossman had the idea of collecting Israeli bumper stickers. He didn't know what he was going to do with it, but after having collected about 120, it occurred to him, ah, I have a song here, and it's actually going to be a song of rap. Uh, and unfortunately, there's another tragic death is uh, uh, conjoined with the genesis of this song. You'll see at one point the song sings, we have no children to spare for unnecessary wars. These are words that David Grossman can appreciate all too well for his son Uri was killed in the 2006 Second Lebanon War. So uh, two years after this song was released, just two days before, just two days after David Grossman and fellow authors Amos Oz and Ebi Yehoshua called in a press conference for a ceasefire in that conflict. And it was Uri who actually first introduced his father to Hadag uh, Nachash. So in a way, was responsible for the collaboration that resulted in this song, okay? So uh, before we start, I'll just note very quickly that this song, powerful, the words itself are powerful, but it's best encountered within, through the video that we're about to see. And just three quick things I want you to look for in the video. The mirroring, as if to say, 
this song is about us. These slogans basically are, are a mirror on Israeli society. One, the irony that the people who mouth the slogans are the people, ironically, often the people who would be least expected to say this. So you have a Haredi, an ultra-Orthodox man, who calls for enlistment, military enlistment, for everybody. You have an ultra-Orthodox uh, Jewish mother who says that uh, a combat role in the army is sort of, that's where it's at. So there's this interesting irony that's inserted into the video. And finally, pay attention to the end where I'll just, you'll see what happens, but where I'll just suggest that what the video is suggesting is that amidst all this poisonous rhetoric, there's potential, there's perhaps no space left for actually clear or fresh thinking in the society.
brilliant video, I have to say. Uh, it's really every time I see it. So you, know, you obviously notice the, the, the complete spectrum of Israeli society that's portrayed there. And again, this irony of who's saying what. You have a suicide bomber, you know, you see the explosives on his chest basically saying no Arabs, no terror attacks, uh, and so forth. I'll just note that in an interview about the, concerning the origin of the genesis of the song, David Grossman admitted that he exercised his poetic license in forging one of the slogans, but he refused to say which one. And I suspect that it's, you, you, it comes up a few times where my name is Nachman and I am a stutterer, which evokes this uh, mantra that one sees all over Israel, on walls, uh, just everywhere, na nach, nachma, nachman, me'uman, which is a mantra from the Breslov uh, Hasidim about Nachman of Breslov or Nachman of Uman. So I think, I suspect, I haven't found any evidence that there was such a bumper sticker, my name is Nachman and I'm a stutterer. So I think that that's uh, David Grossman's uh, own little... There was a sticker. It, there was a sticker like that? Oh, no. So maybe, maybe you know, maybe you know which one it is that David Grossman... Huh. All right. Sorry, I stand corrected. Okay, moving on um, to our final song. Thanks for sticking with us uh, all this time. This 2015 Habib Galbi, Love of My Heart. And this, the backdrop for this song is really, I would suggest, the question of the status of the Arabic language in Israeli society. 21% or so of Israelis are, are Arabs, native Arab speakers. So, uh, slightly over half of Jewish Israelis come from Arab, uh, Arab uh, regional backgrounds. Uh, so, but for many years, Arab, Arabic has had a, you know, a somewhat you know, a second-class status in the, in the culture. And on the one hand, the present time is a time for concern about the status of Arabic. There's a bill working its way through the Knesset, the so-called nation-state bill, which would uh, somewhat derogate the, the status of Arabic relative to Hebrew. But on the other hand, one could suggest that the recent years are, in fact, one of the best times for Arabic in Israeli culture. There have been a whole host of films, including the band's visit that I mentioned before, that have Israeli films that take place either solely or in large part in Arabic. The Knesset itself passed, established a National Arab Language Day in 2016. And this song, I think, is a wonderful uh, example of this recent phenomenon because it is in Arabic and became the first Arabic song ever to reach the top of Israel's pop music charts. Okay. Uh, it is the work of this group, Iwa, uh, which means yeah in Arabic slang. And these are three uh, half-Yemenite sisters born far in Israel south in a tiny village called Shaharut. Uh, Ta'ir, Liron, and Tagel, uh, Chaim is their name. They grew up exposed to traditional uh, Yemenite songs with their grandparents. And in fact, the song that, they, that we're about to hear is a traditional Yemenite melody uh, about a woman mourning her departed lover. Uh, her, her lover has left. A year and a half has passed, there's no sign of the lover, and the woman is left bereft and unconsolable. I want you against that backdrop, the video of the song is particularly interesting because the video, in essence, subverts the meaning, the actual meaning of the song itself. Against this passivity, this sort of female passivity in the lyrics of the song, the video actually shows this, this and this notion of a woman all bereft, completely left alone, you see the three sisters actively seeking out their lovers and their male lovers are basically waiting for them and there's actually a successful union at the very end as represented in the dance that you'll see in the video. As if to sort of say that this is in a sense symbolic of the new spin that this group is in a way putting on 
their traditional, traditional Yemenite culture and Arab uh, culture in Israeli society. As if to say, one can take these, traditional, these traditions and completely turn them around and transform them into something new and modern. And one can, by extension, also sort of see this song as, in a way, taking Israeli culture writ large in a new direction, uh, back, so to say, to its Near Eastern roots, uh, perhaps. OK. Let's hear.
so I'll just note that in addition to becoming, achieving, making it to number one on the Israeli pop charts, this song also it became quite popular throughout the Arab world, and especially in Yemen, and the Arabic of the song is in fact Yemenite uh, Arabic. And so you see sort of it starts off in its very paternalistic environment, this, the patriarchy and so forth, but the, you see how the daughters break free, or at least pretend to break free. Again, what I'm suggesting is a kind of metaphor for uh, a reinterpretation of these traditional songs and traditional cultures in a way that makes them modern. All right, well, thank you very much. I'll just sort of, in just sort of quickly to sum up, I'll just sort of suggest that, well, of course, I don't want to overemphasize any particular sort of narrative line that these seven songs happen to suggest. Nonetheless, the first three, Shir HaReut, Horamam Tera, Pitom Kamadam, very much the myth of Israel and a celebration of the myth of, of Israel. The subsequent three, Chad uh, Gadya, Ma'ale Avak, and Shirata Sticker, then very subjecting that myth to blistering criticism. And then a seventh song that seems in a way able to s simply break free from all the past uh, ideology and rhetoric and head off perhaps in a new direction. And so that's at least a suggestion that I'd like to leave you with as I bring this program to a close. Thank you very much for coming. Now we've got a little long, but we wanted to get through all seven songs. So Thank you for um, your patience. I think we have time for just a few quick questions. If you have other questions, the professor will stick around. Does anybody have a question or two? Yes. I see this, uh, this song celebrating the conquest and transformation of the desert as ultimately about the transformation of, of Jewishness or Israeliness. Uh, and I very much agree with your comment and see it as heading basically in the, uh, further in the same direction. That is to say, yes, the notion of basically turning this, what by God, this God-given desert, so to speak, into a green agricultural paradise as a testimony of what what we as humans, we as Israelis, uh, we as the new Jews are able uh, to accomplish. And again, that rhetoric of this, the notion of the, in the droplets a rainbow appears, the covenant of flower and furrow, the covenant of stillness and melody. It's a new kind of covenant in a way supplanting the God's covenant at the end of the flood story where basically nature's course is destined to stay the way it is forever. No, we are taking what God made as a desert and we're turning it into something new. And we have, we have the right and authority and ability to do that. Thank you. Good. One last question. Well, Chevron Dance Company is also a Zakat Yard. It's one of its numbers, and it's played by the Avi Company. You've got an interpretation of that as a kind of Zakat Yard. Hi. Thank you. Appreciate that. Oh, wait, wait, there's there a question? Or you just. I'm asking if he has an interpretation. Oh, uh, I didn't hear that. Sorry. Would relate to, to this Zakat Yard. I'm familiar with it, but I don't know well enough. Uh, offhand to, to answer that question, I'm afraid to say. 
but it would be want to do a whole program actually on Chagadya and different interpretations of Chagadya. Well, I hope I hope you all enjoyed either hearing music you've heard before, but understanding what you've heard before, or hearing brand new things you've never heard before. I think or both, and celebrating Israel's 70th. The goal of CSP has been to plumb the depths, get beyond what you read about in the newspaper and see Israel in its beauty and its culture. And uh, today we explored the music, we've done poetry, we've done literature. I hope you'll join us for many of our programs coming up in our 18th year and support us. And I hope you have a great day. The press will be here with any other questions. We talked to Madamba, I think they played every morning to wake us up for seven years at Camp Yavna. So I know that song by heart. Uh, <laughs> seven years. Seven years in a row. Thank you. All right, thank you again for coming.